Welcome to Inspiring Entrepreneurs Montreal, our 15th season showcasing stories from outstanding business people presented proudly by BDO Canada. My name is Dan Delmar along with Mike Newton of BDO. Hello, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Excellent. How are you? Very good. Thanks. Especially excellent today because really uh, we have a restaurateur who's quite epic in the business, not only here in Montreal, but across Canada and known around the world, really. He is the uh, chef, co-owner and co-founder of the Joe Beef Group, Fred Morin joins us in just a few minutes and um i'm assuming you've been mike uh, it's a really special group of restaurants to me uh, my my second date with my wife was at van papillon and it's the little details right it's the service it's the compassion that their servers exude it's the competence and the the the, the knowledge about the ingredients it's always a really special experience yeah, I mean, it's quality, it's creativity, it's it's never the same thing. Uh, you know, it's 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 it it really is a, a culinary experience uh, with the entire group, and it's uh, it's also a lot of fun. So Fred Moran joins us in a little bit. We're also going to talk about mergers and acquisitions with our BDO expert Bernard Cormier. That's uh, later in the program. But first, let's get to some news and notes, and we're going to try to keep these uh, more current as we head into the new year and uh, get you some. Interesting business talk and things developing um, at such a rapid rate, Mike, that I think we need to uh, dig into the news a little bit more. And we're going to do that um, on this program, starting with the big story in tech this week, which was OpenAI. Um, it causes a lot of interesting questions about ESG investing, which we spoke about recently on the program. There's the issue about Sam Altman navigating this complicated board arrangement. What do you do as a business if you are at loggerheads with your board? So many interesting uh, twists and turns in the story. So he was fired, the head of OpenAI, Sam Altman, and then uh, rehired, which is the latest, just a few days ago. So he's back and uh, they're going to, I suppose, just get right back to work. Yeah, there's just so much in this story that uh, that, that that leads going forward. I mean, yeah, there, there's the entrepreneurial side of, of of the fight, I guess, between an entrepreneur and his board. Um, but there's also uh, a whole discussion on the ESG investing. I mean, just to remind everybody, uh, ESG investing really the the acronym for uh, environmental, social, and corporate governance. Um, and and what we're seeing is, uh, and this is really a great example of uh, the loggerhead that's coming on between the board's sense of responsibility and the, the investors in capitalism. And I mean, if you you want to take a step back, a few days ago, uh, basically uh, Sam Altman, who is uh, the uh, I guess the brains and the drive behind OpenAI, um, was uh, called upon by the board to to quit. Um, because there was a big consideration or a big concern in terms of where AI was going and the social responsibility associated with it. Um, you know, within hours, there was, uh, you know, a, <laughs> there was a call to reinstate him. Uh, and in the same motion, uh, Sam Altman was hired by Microsoft and Microsoft is, Microsoft is the largest shareholder in open AI. Uh, so they went from hiring uh, Sam Altman to uh, assuring the entire staff at OpenAI that if anybody wanted to leave, they would continue their employment at Microsoft uh, and uh, talked about Sam Altman taking over a new AI research department. Um, there was a guarantee that uh, the work that AI, OpenAI was doing would continue to go forward all under Microsoft's, shall we call it, thumb uh, as being the senior uh, investor. 
Uh, and then, boom, this whole discussion of, well, maybe he's going to come back again. And, and initially, it seemed like Altman was going to lead this new AI research division at Microsoft. Uh, Bloomberg started reporting that, oh, wait a second, uh, they've reopened discussions and yeah, maybe possibly uh, Altman's going to go back to uh, to open AI. Um, in the process of uh, Altman uh, being uh, shown the door, Greg Brockman, who, uh, who was the president, uh, quit over the discussion. Uh, and all of a sudden, boom, the, the, some of the members of the board and a bunch of investors started to jump in and uh, we get a whole new perspective on this. And then all of a sudden, two days later, Wednesday rolls around and uh, Mr. Altman is back as CEO just days after being fired and releasing a complete and utter chaos within the technology industry. Um, you know, it concludes a short but chaotic power struggle, obviously, that shocked the tech industry and underscored the conflicts around how to safely utilize uh, and, and move forward with, with AI. Uh, he's now going to respond to a new board, so uh, some of the same members, but the the, con the configuration of the board as well as the influence is going to change. And now you've got uh, a couple of uh, very, very large uh, uh, corporate America people on there. You've got Brett Taylor, who was formerly the Salesforce and CEO, and he chaired uh, Twitter before Musk to took over, as well as U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers and Quora CEO uh, Adam D'Angelo, who was on the board before. Uh, when they kicked him out and then was also rather instrumental in bringing him back. What does this all say to you, Dan? Well, it's interesting because there's so many new models in tech that are uh, that have different ownership structures. And that's what Sam Altman was trying to do here. He was trying to create a company that would be sheltered from the normal market forces and the kinds of drama, board drama, takeovers, all that that uh, that are so common in tech. In that sense, it appears as though he failed. I mean, th there was a near takeover here, and if it wasn't for a lot of negotiations and uh, and backroom dealing, the company would have imploded, and and he would have gone to Microsoft and essentially started over. So for me, Mike, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on this, but it it's it highlights the fact that if you're going to put a lot of control in your in the hands of your employees and create a different model, and uh, and give them more control, uh, perhaps even board control, perhaps as a parallel nonprofit, which worked into their model as well. The the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's are so important because you, you may not be as, as bulletproof as you thought you were. Yeah, it, definitely. That's part of it. I mean, you, you, you're, I don't think anything is for sure. And, and certainly when we're talking about, uh, you know, the amount of money that's being invested in, in some of these startups and certainly in AI at this point. But you know, I think it also, uh, the whole turmoil accentuated the difference between Altman, who really has been the face of the entire generative AI <clears throat> movement and its rapid commercialization, and the company's board's reservations about the safety prospects and, and posed by AI and, and how it advances in all of this. And you have this, this utter conflict about, you know, is AI good for us? Uh, what's it going to do? How are we going to control it? Who's going to step in? How are we going to police it? And hey, wait a second, there's billions of dollars being invested behind this. And I'm going to start, uh, you know, from Altman's perspective, we're going to commercialize this and we need to move it forward. You know, the it, it shows really how fragile the AI ecosystem is right now. You know, when you look at it, you say, including uh, you know, the risks, there's just so much out there that we don't know. And there is this very strong, powerful uh, lobby on both sides of the equation here in terms of how we move forward with uh, with generative AI. Just about a minute, Mike, for anyone who's experiencing issues with their board, uh, maybe some board members are bored themselves and wanting to, to do some power plays or whatever. But if, if someone acts up and is imperiling the company with their actions, 
as a founder, what advice would you give to, to, to staring that person down in the boardroom and, and coming out on top? It's, uh, you know, the, it, it again, it, it's ultimately the decision is where is this going from the founder's perspective? Um, you know, if if in some cases you sell your soul for uh, for the ultimate investment dollar at the end of the day and you leave yourself in very limited scope, uh, it wouldn't be the first time we've seen founders uh, basically carve themselves out of an existing organization. You know, staring down the board of uh, staring down the the barrel of a board, I guess, is, as you would say, is is certainly a very problematic environment. I mean, more and more emphasis, I think, on the social side of things is being pushed and the board's responsibility is finding itself in a position to exert the social influence um, in a lot of these things, and especially when it comes to ESG investing. Uh, and there is going to continue to be a conflict. And, and, I, and I don't think this is going to be the last one of these power plays we see, but certainly from an AI perspective, I think we're going to see, uh, there's going to be a lot more changes before before the dust settles, uh, not just in open AI, but in principle. And we all know that Microsoft has spent billions of dollars on investment uh, in in working on uh, on AI and and moving it forward. I mean, this is a major major area, and you know there was no doubt that the moment Altman uh, found himself uh, outside the outside looking in, uh, somebody was willing to uh, to help perpetuate the work he'd been doing. Well, it's a really special product that will require some special attention, and we'll have to see uh, what develops on the open AI front. Thanks, Mike. And Mike, let's get right to our distinguished guest. He is the co-owner, co-founder, and chef, head chef of uh, the Joe Beef Group. Fred Mora is here. Fred, welcome back to CJD. Hey, how are you? It's been a while. It has. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been wanting to do this interview for for years, and uh, we appreciate your time. So much to discuss on the show today. Uh, but first, the simplest question for the three people out there who might not know, what is the Joe Beef Group? Uh, Joe Beef Group, we started in uh, 2005. Most of us had worked in big uh, restaurants. Um, and at the time, it was restaurants where the uh, there was a myth if you want that, if you wanted to open your restaurant, you needed like a hundred seats, you needed like a designer, you needed like lots of investors and the, the, the chef and maitre d' were like minority partners. So we realized with the help of like some actual, like some, some people in the business field, not in the restaurant field, but that helped us look at numbers that say, yes, we can make, uh, we can make a living. Not an ambitious living, but with a, a small restaurant of 10 tables, right? And we can do some of the work ourselves. We, we can wait after a month to buy another piece of equipment and so on. So we didn't have to start with hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? We started with $60,000. That was Joe Beef. We expanded on the other side, which we called Little Beef. Then we did Liverpool House, Vain Papillon, and then McKiernan, which is in Villamard. It's a brunch, dinner, lunch place. It's always bustling. It's an amazing spot. It's open, spacious, and kids love it. So that's what it is now. And uh, we're nearing 20 this uh, next September. So when you first started, you must have started with a philosophy and approach that you guys wanted to bring to the market. And whether that, uh, you know, obviously quality, size, simplicity, complexity in terms of the, the the food in a simpler environment. What was it that drove you to try and do your own uh, your own thing, and what's that underlying principle that you started with that you still take with you today? Oof, I, I think in uh, in hindsight, it's easy to um, come up with the principle, but I don't think anybody who opened a small restaurant would have scripted that so clearly prior to opening. And I think for the few principles we we held to at first, we realized soon enough that it was impossible, such as like 
they ever change in market menu, you know, three dishes and we'd go to the market every day. The principles in retrospect, if I take a few, would be a restaurant that knows how to adapt and, and a restaurant that would adapt his playlist to the, the time of the evening and to who's there would adapt, like to who's working for you, not having a uniform was a big thing. Um, making maybe our, making our own rules when it came to which cocktail we had on the menu. Just a smaller overall restaurant. If you if you take it back that far, um, there, there was only a few. Uh, David Chang had Momofuku, uh, Gabriel Hamilton had Prune in New York, and they were like kind of a owner built restaurant, if you want. And um, it's quality. The big restaurants were doing quality. You know, we always had the same suppliers. We always did the same thing. But I, I guess the principles that guide a young entrepreneur that's leaving his previous job to be self-employed, they're don'ts, they're not do's, you know? It's like, I don't want to serve as much people. I don't want to stress myself out and I'll be closing two days. I don't want to work through the summers. I'll be closing two weeks in the summer, in the summers and in the winters. So these were like the don't principles we had close and we, we stuck to up till this day. Fred Mora joins us from Joe Beef Group. In the early days, was it your goal, really? Were you thinking we're going to go out there and be among Canada's top restaurants or and, and be focused internationally? Or did that sort of come organically? Uh, what was your level of confidence at the beginning? <laughs> it's like talking about the, I'm, I'm going to speak for myself, but a 30-year-old, uh, a 30-year-old ambitious guy with like maybe a lot of like craft skills and not so many business skills, but, you know, like, I think we, we, everyone com complimented each other very well at the beginning. And that was a bit of the secret, you know, um, my wife and partner, Allison was always very good at keeping us on the, on the straight and narrows, just so we, we would respect budgets, which is not sexy and, uh, and young entrepreneur talk but is important if you want to open next month, right? And I've, I've, we've heard of so many horror stories in this business of like accounts payable, payable being like months and not years late and things going in recovery and people closing, selling their restaurant with like huge amount of debts. And I think it was a, one of the principle was to be a stand-up operation that had a good name everywhere, you know? It's interesting because, you know, you go back to 2005, we're talking 18 years, a lot of people are going to look at, at what you've built and said, there's been this constant, there's been this, you know, uh, baseline, uh, some days, and, and then you touched on it earlier, I think the only constant is constant change. Yeah, the the, one of the biggest change in this industry, to me, it, it's, and in the world in general, is we open and it was flip phones, right? And then I was talking about playlists, it, you, had, you, you needed quite a sound system before, to have like CD changers and play music and stuff. And now like all of a sudden it's like, what do you want to listen to, you know, hip hop tonight or Quebecois or whatever. And, and, and you could do that like rapidly, you know, and then people started taking pictures of their food and leaving instant reviews. And the way we wrote a menu changed because before that it was about the vocabulary and the, the if you want the poetry of a menu, and then it suddenly became about the looks of the plate, you know, and the angle at which people uh, presented their food to change because it was now to be taken from above in a photography, right? And now the reservation system changed. It was online. Um, 
And people used to call the restaurant to ask for our address and they don't do that anymore, right? They just look up at the address. Um, we're able to know if people are late or not, right? They can tell us like, oh, we're five minutes late, you know? It's, it's, we, now, we now order food and make inventory with our phones. And, and it's like, I think it's one of the biggest change in this industry that people don't notice enough when they talk about like trends and, and whatever. I don't even see it as a trend, but I see it. And for the, the social media plague that people criticize, it's, I think, in counterpart, it helped us tremendously. Let's discuss some of the technological issues there because a lot of no-shows, as you're hinting, I think, maybe there's an internet component there. You know, people are able to book and drop really easily or, or and maybe that's creating part of the problem. How have you guys managed that from a, a operations point of view? How, how have you been able to cut down on, on no-shows? Uh, I don't know. It's like the perpetual motion machine or the, you know, cheap gas uh, problem. If you find the answer, please tell me because... Um, I've, I know physiotherapists and tattoo artists that are going through the same thing. Uh, seems to be that the impulse to reserve or the impulse to book an appointment is more, um, you have the capacity to book on an impulse where before you had to wait, leave a message or call during operation hours. So I presume people do book once one place, another place, they forget. Um, I know we're not allowed to take a deposit here in Quebec. And that's one thing that like uh, some of the restaurant groups are trying to uh, discuss with the government. But to me, it's just like I, I book the dentist, I go to the dentist, you know. Um, if you want to cancel, it's not even about canceling, right? It's about not letting people know. And it's we don't question when the airlines uh, overbook to prevent that. We don't question if the airline just sorry, you're late, you're not getting on your flight. And then in the restaurants, we are the, the restaurants in a weird position in, in, in this world, if you think about it, because it, let's say you have a, a barbershop. So you have your hairstylist license, then you're only able to go to that store and buy like the good clippers and the, you know, the professional product. Like I can't go to that store. If I'm not a florist, I can't go to the, the wholesale flower stores, you know, um, and it's like that for most trades. And in the restaurant business, all, all my suppliers are open to the public, right? The SAQ is open to the public. Everything is transparent. So there's no, there's no favor there to the, <laughs> to the restaurant industry by any, uh, at any levels. Fred, uh, as I implied, you know, I've had a, a very special personal connection to these restaurants. My wife and I went there on our second date. Um, it's always flawless. I mean, you guys pay attention to, to little details. It's the wine and the competence of, of the wine pairings. What are some of, uh, what are some little tricks that you use to, uh, to hook people like me emotionally to your restaurants? I, I can't, uh, again, I don't see it as engineered and designed to hook people. I see it as like, I'll just take the current staff and the pillars of our staff. You know, we have uh, Isabel, which is like longtime manager, who's an amazing person to host you and to greet you. And there's Laura who might serve you or Florent who might serve you, who sincerely will guide you towards what's good, not necessarily what's more expensive. I think we just manage to keep the great people. And there is, there is mistakes, you know, we'll always do mistakes. And if you read daily reports, there is mistakes, but the goal is to not make mistakes. And the goal is to not sit and accept those mistakes, right? 
deep down, you know, there's a failure rate in every business, but I still think it's, it's unacceptable and we do our best to correct it. You know, again, people try to define what is the food of Quebec or what is the food of Montreal, what is Canadian food. But I think specifically for Montreal, it's a city with the streets have like potholes and the snow banks on both sides of the road and the cars like parking on top of the snow banks and you know that could be slush and salt and everything and it's like mid-january and you push the door of a restaurant either like Carmanger or like <laughs> Piet Cochon or, or Hogan and Beaufort or whatever like all the good well what I think is good restaurants and all of a sudden you're like in a in a warm chaumière you know you're you're in a warm cozy cabin you know even like express in the winter you push the door you walk in and and i think this kind of combined with hospitality of like the, the i don't find when you try when i travel i always find a little bit of a competition between the waiter and the the diner you know like a a, sn a smugness or oh you should know or like you know and I think Quebec is very, uh, very transparent. We don't do this ironic, sarcastic service. It's a very honest, dynamic French English. It doesn't matter. The restaurant's warm and cozy. The food is 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 not too contrived. So I think that's what defines us, and that's what defines in general. But well, maybe for me, my favorite place is in Montreal. So the economics of uh, of business, and and I'm putting that on the heels of staffing and and people costs, right? I mean, you're let's let's face it, it's it's not the most complicated of business. It's people costs, it's food costs, it's location. Um, inflation's certainly been creeping in uh, to to the to the restaurant industry, and for a lot of people, not only is that um, narrowing down margins, but it's having a massive effect on 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 what they're serving and and limiting their creativity. Um, I think you have a different angle on that. Well, I think that the main change it has done, it had it has created expectations from the dining public, right? Because the prices are increased. And the prices are increased not only because of the inflation in food costs, it has increased because the staffs have health care plan, uh, you know, the salaries are above market rate and the and and so on. I think we have to go the extra mile to provide comfort and goods because it might not be twice a month like last like two three years ago it might be once a month that you go out so the the expectations are are very very high and i feel that sometimes the goalposts are moving right especially post pandemic everybody was like oh restaurants and doctors and nurses there are heroes and and you see it with doctor and nurses it took no time for them to be like you know <laughs> unconsidered by the government you know and the same thing, like, you know, it's like, oh, restaurants, support your local restaurants. And then, all oh, right, the guaranteed loans, it's time to pay back. It's time to do this. It's time to do that. It's not the, and it's not, if you think about it, it's not the most simple of business because you have a lot of transaction daily, you know, compared to any other business. And it's a little bit, it's a service industry. It's a transformation industry. And in a time where even like shoes, clothes, everything. Everything is made elsewhere. We manufacture basically the last things we'll manufacture in this, in maybe in, in, in our province and our country will be like pretty much food and certain mechanical or electronic stuff rarely, but like food is the basically the only manufactured good that you'll find, right? 
But contrary to other businesses, we have like 10 suppliers delivering every day. And we have like uh, 180 invoices to customers every day. So if you think about it, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of moving parts. Fred Mora joins us, chef and co-founder of the Joe Beef Group. Uh, let's talk a bit about retail. Uh, I see you expanded in a few areas. You've had the sauces, spices for a while, frozen meals as well. Was that a pandemic uh, pivot or uh, or was that in the plans uh, for, for quite some time? Uh, pivot implies, again, like a, uh, <laughs> a not panic, reflected, coherent move, you know, and I think the pandemic was not conducive to that. Um, I think during the pandemic, I have to tip my hat to like all the restaurants, everybody tried and everybody produced like from social media presence to like graphic design, to like packaging, to like offer like the food offer, the delivery service, the Shopify online and everything. I think like we, I, I, I didn't see one concept that I didn't think, Oh, that's great. You know, or I wish I thought of that before, like everybody get really creative. The frozen food, yes, I think specifically the frozen food, there's the, I believe there's a trend now from the retail industry to outsource their house brand, if you want. And um, so if you think about it, they outsource the R&D, they outsource like, you know, the marketing and everything. And and so they, they can cut on their own like in-house R&D chef or department or whatever. That's... um. We reviewed our position on this, where our guideline is, do we use it in the restaurant or not? So if we don't use it in the restaurant, we wouldn't make it in the restaurant. We're not going to produce it anymore. So um, spices, yes, we use the same spices. They have way less salt, way less fillers than the other brands. The sauces, same. But if you look at the grocery store, the size of the display for sauces and condiments and spices hasn't changed. But the offering, the, the the amount of restaurants now dealing with co-packers to put their brand out there, as I think it it has like increased by like a thousand percent. You know, there's there's restaurants I don't know of that have spices out there now, because I put myself in the shoes of a co-packer. It's easy. Uh, you want to maximize your your production chain. You want to maximize your your bulk bottle purchases. So why not take another contract? You know. And now, you know, maybe five years ago, people were buying the steak, the sauce, and the spices. Three years ago, they were buying uh, the steak and the spices. Now they're buying the steak and maybe the spices. So I think we're looking at that market. It's an interesting market. We're looking at more specialized places than just mass market, you know. Sorry, a lot of people feel that moving in that direction was selling out. Uh, you know, in in type in times of you know taking your product from a higher end restaurant and 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 going to market, but I I think what you're looking at now is is a diversity and a creative approach to doing different things. I I assume you feel that this is something that's going to continue this co-packing and and the retail side of 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 higher end uh, higher quality restaurants. Yeah, sure. That that like we said, we trimmed, uh, we pruned the offering by just following that fundamental question would we serve it right and and if we didn't serve it if it's something that we didn't previously do and we were doing for off-site or like retail business then we're not going to continue doing that because that would be what you refer to as selling out you know but if it's the spices that we use 
I walk through the kitchen at McKiernan, the guys are using the barbecue spices for their ribs there. You know, that's that's how it has to be to me, you know. And uh, if the offering doesn't increase, I, I think it's it's luxury goods, right, in a way. And you don't want to, like, force it on people. And you want people to buy it every time the jar empties. And that's about it, you know. You can't force people to have, like, 18 kinds of Joe Beef spices in their in their cupboard, that's not realistic. You just want, I'd be much happier if they have the steak spice and the chicken spice. And like I said, when the jar is empty, they just buy another one and it becomes a routine item. The amount of skews and the amount of offering on the shelves doesn't really matter if it doesn't sell. And now Fred, if you don't mind, a couple more questions I want to squeeze in just for the podcast. Um, just in terms of food food trends and, and what you're doing lately, obviously inflation is a big factor. Um, what, what what do you like making uh, this month that is inflation friendly? Uh, I like I like uh, ducks, whole ducks, you know, and uh, like legs of fowls, you know, like uh, like you buy a good capon, uh, the legs confit in duck fat, smoked duck fat, you know, or or blood sausage and stuff like that. We still we we still love oysters and stuff. We're just more careful about the way we uh, we handle them and and. And present them, you know, it's not the oysters, for example, used to be this pile of oyster on the bar, a buck a shot, but now you can't do that, you know, so the one we're going to sell is going to have to be perfect and it's going to have to flawless oyster and perfectly shocked and everything. Um, I really like uh, birds uh, in in the fall, you know, and and I, I don't know if it's inflation or me or whatever but i can't eat as much as i used to so i don't find the gigantic plate as appealing as it used to be so we had no choice in a way because of the the food cost to reduce to a, a rational portions but i find that's that's something good you know um it forced us to look into like finding the best beef possible it forced us into it i wouldn't say it's like I think we mean to use the word creativity. We mean to use the word resourceful instead of creativity often. And I think, if, for example, hiring an employee that is creative or labeling oneself as creative might lead to uh, headbutting on, on like maintaining standards or, or, or certain practice because changing is being creative, you know? Resourceful might be like, hmm, problem solving capacity. Uh, how can I make this better? Might be like able to like question oneself. So I think resourcefulness is like, uh, it, it, well, the, the, the Renaissance man is a re resourceful man, you know, he's not a creative man. One more question. In terms of uh, restaurant trends in general, um, what, what advice would you give to young restaurateurs who are starting out with amid all this inflation? Uh, and uh, and the various challenges going on right now. What what advice would you give yourself if you were if you were a young chef? I know it's hard um, to be young and to be told to wait, but you go to Home Depot, it's more expensive. You look at leases, they're more expensive. You look at food, it's more expensive, and it's never been a cycle that lasted that long, anyways. So I would just wait. Uh, salaries are good now. Um, job market is good now. Is a good time to travel. Now is a good time to um, work for other people, you know, even even maybe somebody who's an excellent cook and who has nailed all the culinary aspect of his business plan could just sign up for a year of like 
go and work somewhere else. I think the unexpected and the uh, the unlikely path that you take bring more to your career and your business down the line than you expect. Um, the perfect resume. I know people in the business world and they spend their life being coached for interviews and get a new resume. Once they get the position, well, they spend time preventing other people submitting good ideas and then still being coached. So you have this feeling that in that escalation of ambition, there is nowhere, there's like a, a passion for the job itself, you know, or for the work or for the, you know. It's very it's very much ticking the boxes, I think, in, in, in the way we've traditionally been brought up in things, right? So, you know, you go to school, you do this, you do that, you check the boxes. What you're talking about is is what a lot of people miss, and that's experience. That's trying different things. It's learning about life uh, more so than just making sure you hit all the uh, all, all all the price points or all the uh, or all the check yeah. boxes on your list. I I think it's uh, a, a being a generalist is an underappreciated quality, and you find the best. Like I talked with surgeons who basically were high school dropouts and had the weirdest, most uncommon path to get back to like school and biology and like army, military, then like, you know, like then med school, then, and, and those people are often the best problem solver, the best in their field, the best, you know, and they're the more at peace with their decision because they tried other stuff before, you know, um, there is no, I, I don't know. I never looked at resume because the, specifics of the our industry it's a bit like hockey if you want it's like you can have the best resume you want but like you get in the kitchen and 10 minutes will know if it's you know valid or not right if you can't skate doesn't matter who you played for you can't skate you know we'll have uh, chef fred morez one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs in a few minutes co-owner, co-founder of the Joe Beef Group. But first, let's check in with our BDO expert. Bernard Cormier is the Managing Director and Partner of Mergers and Acquisitions at BDO Canada. Bernard, welcome to the program. Yeah, Dan, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for having me. I'm pretty happy to be here, especially with Fred Morin. Uh, so it's pretty fitting to talk about mergers and acquisitions, M&A, when we've got somebody uh, from the restaurant business, and we've seen a lot of consolidation in that space in recent years. So happy to be here. And Mike, a lot of turbulence means a lot of potentially uh, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that just happen in life. You know, sometimes somebody walks in, knocks on the door and says, I want to buy your restaurant or knocks on your door and says, I want to buy your house. But in order to really monetize that properly, Bernard, I mean, how should an entrepreneur prepare for an eventual sale? Yeah, so there's, um, I would say, generally speaking, you want to at least uh, start planning two years in advance. Uh, there's a number of aspects you want to cover off in that planning process. And one aspect is the tax planning aspect. Uh, there are rules from a timing perspective that you might need to meet. For example, if you want to plan uh, sale and you want to take advantage of capital gain exemption, uh, there are timing rules to follow. So you want to uh, make sure you cover it up. Um, also, if you're selling, you can about, if you're about to sell your business, you want to make sure that you've got a management team that's really complete um, so that you don't uh, go into a process with gaps uh, within the two people. Um, that's certainly something that uh, uh, you want to plan ahead for. Uh, also, sales and cash flow trend line. Uh, ideally, you want to show some growth to a prospective buyer ahead of a transaction. Identifying the non-recurring 
discretionary expenses within the business is also very important because you want to be able to demonstrate what type of cash flow uh, a buyer might be uh, generating business post-close. Uh, my next, uh, I guess, aspect to look for would probably be my, my, my favorite um, aspect because it's oftentimes overlooked by entrepreneurs and people in general, the working capital aspect. Uh, so you do want to plan a year, two years in advance and make sure that you optimize the working capital because if you don't, as an entrepreneur, you're gonna leave, uh, you might leave a lot of money on the table. Uh, when I was just going to say, you sound like a real numbers guy when working capital gets uh, gets you excited. So, uh, you know, it's I guess that's that continues to play a little bit into where where does your role fall into uh, in, in into all of this? Yeah, so we're financial advisors, and I would say um, best way to describe our role would be the quarterback in a transaction. So we kind of accompany the, the client from A to Z. We could uh, break down the process into three phases, the first phase being the documentation phase. Second phase, the marketing phase, and the third phase, the execution phase of a, of a transaction. So in the documentation phase, we'll sit down with the entrepreneur, entrepreneur, uh, set the objectives, help the devise a strategy for the transaction, help prepare a pricing analysis for the business, help prepare the marketing documentation, and also help prepare the buyers list, which is pretty important. The next phase, which is the marketing phase, we'll go out and solicit potential buyers, uh, on behalf of our client. And the last phase, the execution phase, will receive offers, help evaluate offers, help negotiate a deal, manage the due diligence process, review the definitive agreements with our client, and help them all the way. Bernard Cormier, Managing Director and Partner Mergers and Acquisitions at BDO Canada. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And as we come to the end of our show, we turn to our guest, Fred Morin, co-founder, head chef, Joe Beef Group, and we ask him for his one piece of advice for inspiring entrepreneurs. Fred, what do you think? It would be to listen. When we're young, we tend to to talk. I tended to talk. I tended to tell my story that was barely, uh, that was barely, like, if you take the three little pigs, my story was the the straw house, you know? But I wanted to tell it to everyone and blah, 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 blah. And my opinions, right? That was what that mattered. And the little that I knew and stuff. And then I realized one day that like, especially in the restaurant, everybody that walked in was a probably an expert of some of at something or other, or had an interesting life story or had an interesting advice. And and I think that to listen and to share and to to, to open yourself and to question yourself, you know, um, we talk about fake news. Fake news are a fact only because there's people without a sense of critical thinking, right? They don't happen in a vacuum. So uh, be critical. Be critical of yourself. Be critical of your old self. Don't be afraid to change, you know? And let's, let's not forget that any any business, any legitimate business is meant to serve a need, but a, a need of someone, you know? And if that person needs like stainless steel cabinets or podiatry services, it's still a person that received the cabinets or the the podiatry services, right? So be in touch with that person and never like, never take it for granted. You know, it's people that transact money. It's not computers. It's not computers. You know, bitcoins are still held by people, you know, like it's, it's people behind everything. So let let's, 
if you get along with people and if you do your best to find the good in them, I think the business will come. Well, it's it's some kind of cash karma, if you can call it that, or I do believe in that. Thank you, Fred. And Mike, a quick takeaway. I, I was wondering, coming into this, how, how what advice would Fred have to, you know, how do you build a culinary legend? I mean, to, to, to be recognized internationally for what you do. And I guess the answer is slowly, plate by plate, very slowly and meticulously. Not intending to build an empire. Hmm. You don't start with an empire and you don't accept when people say empire. You just say, you say like, no, I want to do a 10-seater. This is what I'm going to do, okay? Uh, I'm going to score the next goal. I'm not going to score 10. I'm going to score the next one, you know? I'm going to make the next play. But the more and more I talk to people, very rare are the people that like had childhood dreams of playing in the NA. They have their dream, a realistic ambition, either they're athletes or medical doctors or like like entrepreneurs or everything. They always did what was best for them at the moment, right? They always did what was the, the right choice. Like when they were 13, they said, okay, it's good for me to play there, okay? When I was like working the market, yeah, it sounds good. I'll work at the market. I don't think, I've never met a chef who said like, oh, I saw myself like out there, you know? I had this vision of being like at the headlines and my name on the marquee or, or, or what's up, you know? I think you have to start and do what's the matter at do the project at hand and concentrate on that. Otherwise you just go over it and being an entrepreneur for the sake of, of, of entrepreneurship, you know, maybe on shark tank or dragon's den, whatever, but like in the real world, it's not my, it's not, it's not me. Yeah. It's, it, it's very interesting to listen because I, I listening to your Fred, because I think the concept of critical thinking, I think is, is lost on most people today. And I think the concept of living in the moment and, and dealing with uh, the experience that you're living with in, in today's world uh, is also lost on a lot of people. So it's a very interesting takeaway from, uh, from all of this. I mean, other than, other than the awesome food and the great experiences, uh, I think your, uh, your thoughts are shedding a little bit of a different light onto what we're normally used to listening to. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for dropping by, Fred. We really appreciate it. And this does conclude uh, the first half of our 15th season here on Inspiring Entrepreneurs. So in the new year, we're going to kick it off with coffee. Uh, Stephen Curry from Union Coffee uh, talking about fair trade and how they've really cornered uh, a lot of the Montreal restaurant market in coffee distribution. Don't forget you can subscribe to Inspiring Entrepreneurs as a podcast on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks, Mike. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Dan. Happy holidays to all. Talk.